This is the Pain Information Network. Welcome back. Well, I've been traveling a lot and probably have missed a week or two of podcasting, but let me tell you where I've been. I've been to New Orleans uh, to a conference that was the American Society of Addiction Medicine. We spoke there with Sandy Silverman, and then I uh, went to the annual meeting with ACIP. That's uh, in Orlando, then week after the Florida Society of Interventional Pain Physicians meeting. And there I had a really good uh, time with some really great people. It was a great meeting. For a regional meeting, they almost just don't get better. So I'm outside today, so you're going to hear birds. You'll probably hear dogs barking. You can maybe hear some other extraneous sounds like airplanes flying overhead or anything that can happen, like a lawnmower. it's, It's just... It just never stops, <laughs> the noises. It's summertime. Everybody's outside. So one of the topics that's timely that I think we should talk about is this uh, problem with heroin. And why do I think it's a problem? Because it is a problem. Heroin is now being uh, laced with a fentanyl-like drug, carfentanil, and fentanyl itself of unknown purity and unknown potency. And it's leading to what's now being termed gray death. Gray death is an ugly term, but it has it has some sensibility. First of all, you mess with this stuff, you could die. And you don't really know what you're getting on the street, and you don't know what really what's inside. But the, this fentanyl or carfentanyl combination drug with heroin is gray. And it looks different. If you've never seen heroin, it can either be dark and pasty, and uh, that's called tar heroin, or it can be kind of a, a whitish powder. So it's it's variable in its production, and that's kind of a problem with heroin. Heroin, heroin is just this long-storied drug. It was originally formulated way back in 1874. And that was by C.R. Wright. And it came from morphine, which originally morphine would have come from the opium poppy. And guess where most of that's grown? That's in Afghanistan, about 60 to 70 percent. So this progression of being formulated to being used took a couple of decades when a, a guy named Felix Hoffman, who worked for Bayer, you know, Bayer Aspirin, put it to use and it started calling it heroin. Heroin is kind of uh, Greekish for heroic because it did a lot of things. It helped pain, helped coughs, helped the twitches. It helped a lot of stuff. And and it, it, it thought was its thoughts were, oh, this is very medicinal, and you can use it for a number of medical reasons, and it isn't really all that habit-forming and destructive like morphine was beginning to be recognized. Well, okay, think again. It uh, has a way of being abused like so many other drugs. And it was found early on you could uh, smoke it, snort it, you could inhale it, you could inject it. So what what did they do? They made it in a liquid form, and they even gave it to uh, teething babies. And the whole idea there was to calm the baby, calm the nerves. And uh, sometimes those that had a predilection toward morpheus or morphine or opium, opium dens and the like, that were going through a little bit of withdrawal, put a little uh, bit in their gums, and it would stop the withdrawal, really cut it back. And so believe it or not, that's what uh, its current use is. 
somewhat in Europe. It's not legal here. So there's different schedules of drugs. There's Schedule One uh, in the United States, and Schedule One basically means there's no clinical use uh, and it's just not allowed. And that would be crack cocaine, not regular cocaine. Regular cocaine is Schedule Two. It's a local anesthetic. Um, it would be uh, heroin. It might be something else, a designer drug that has all all these new names that the DEA can't keep uh, keep up with. Uh, so it, it can be uh, an experimental drug that has not been FDA categorized uh, or DEA approved. And so then you go to Schedule Two and three, and four, and five. So what's the difference in schedules? Well, it's felt to be potentially uh, habit-forming or abused uh, either in the street or the home, and it is scheduled. So oxycodone, hydrocodone now, uh, used to be Schedule three, uh, is Schedule two, um, and a number of other drugs uh, that are potentially habit-forming or uh, easily uh, d- develop dependence, and that would be like morphine. And so uh, it doesn't mean potency. So Schedule two isn't necessarily stronger than Schedule three, four, or 5, although usually it's kind of a, 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 loose, um, a loose way of saying, you know, they aren't really abused because they're not really liked that much, and so abusability is less, but so is probably the euphoria. And uh, the feeling that you got a front row seat. So, okay, heroin. That's a Schedule One drug in America. In Europe, uh, it's it's not. It's called dimorphine. And in Europe, uh, they use it uh, for a number of disorders, including se- severe and significant pain. It is a good pain medicine, believe it or not. But a quarter to half of the people that use this drug uh, become dependent. Now, this this is a problem with heroin because it could be so euphorogenic. You could get, get such a, a high off this so easily that you'd want to repeat it and get that dopamine rush right away. And you start developing tolerance. And you may, tolerance means you're going to need more drug for that action to chase that uh, uh, characteristics. So you take a little bit more. And then you take a little bit more, and over time, your dependency is higher, your tolerance is higher, and let's just say you don't have it available anymore. Well, see, I, I can tell you the stories, the many stories of folks going to prison or incarcerated for a couple of months or something like this. They get out and they go to their their old dose of uh, heroin, and they have no tolerance, and guess what? Bad outcome. Now, this is this is a statistic that is rising, and it's very concerning. Almost 2% of citizens in the U.S. have used heroin. Can you, it's hard for me to wrap my arms around that, 2%. And it's uh, this drug is uh, a euphoric high because it does give people that, that feeling that they're searching for, that they're craving. So if they can't get their... Uh, high from oxycodone or whatever the drug of choice is, they can get it from heroin. Heroin does this because it's quickly metabolized into something called 6-monoacetylmorphine or 6-MAM. 
Now, why is that important? Because that's what we look for in a drug screen. And we look for that metabolite. And when we see it, we're lucky because it doesn't stick around long. But that um, 6 ma'am is probably what is uh, this drug's euphoria. Now, when you inject heroin, it goes across what's called a blood-brain barrier very fast. And it gets acetylated in there uh, as well once it's past the blood-brain barrier. But usually it needs to be acetylated. Um, And that's why if you do it orally, you don't really get high because it's such a slow absorption. But that fast, rapid absorption, like with IV, is what gets people hooked fast. So, well, okay. What is the deal with gray death? All right, so there's this drug called fentanyl. Okay, fentanyl is about 100 times, roughly 100 times more potent than morphine. Genetics and a lot of other things play into that. And then there's this new drug, newer drug um, that it isn't really that new, but uh, it's called carfentanil, and it's 100 times more potent than fentanyl, which is 10,000 times more potent than morphine. And it's only really used in veterinary medicine. But the thing about carfentanil, and I'm going to have a podcast on this from a great guy I interviewed in Florida, uh, one of the guys that did a lot of early work with carfentanil, a fantastic doctor. Um, It was so potent that uh, certain agencies, and he'll talk about those agencies, thought about weaponizing it. Whereas fentanyl is a liquid, it's uh, roughly a uh, hundred times more potent than morphine. This carfentanil can be just a little flake. It, it can knock you down. It, a little bit can knock down, I mean a small amount, an elephant, a 2,000-pound elephant. Um, I guess that's what they weigh. <laughs> okay, another drug that is used in America that is a drug similar to fentanyl usually used in the operating room, but I think we're going to be seeing more of it, is a drug called sufentanil that I uh, used a lot in my training, and alfentanil, which we really don't see much of. Okay, the difference between sufentanil and alfentanil is sufentanil is about 5 to 10 times more potent than fentanyl. Uh, in Europe, they're using it, and it's uh, got some very positive potential for a patch uh delivery system and there are phase three trials it may be phase four by now but phase three i do know of uh is being trialed here the advantage of this uh, drug called coragesic in europe is in fact uh, it could be left on for seven days so fentanyl is now a q3 day patch and most people say it doesn't work past 48 hours uh, this sufentanil patch could be left on a full seven days. That's cost-effective and potentially convenient to the patient. Okay, so alfentanil is about a quarter as potent as fentanyl, and it comes on fast, and that's why it's used. It comes on about four times faster. So here we have these drugs, and you can see there's different derivatives. And it doesn't take much manipulation of the molecule in a devious uh, laboratory to come up with some of these derivatives that can uh, throw the DEA off. I mean, they haven't had any time to classify them. And I was speaking to the DEA, and um, 
listening to some of the other folks talk, and they have these designer drugs snap up so fast, it's hard for them to keep up. So we may be seeing this gray death come in many different forms. Right now, if the gray death has carfentanil in it, it, it's just plain deadly. Um, if it has fentanyl in it, we don't know where the fentanyl comes from. Uh, some have said China. Others have said uh, it comes through Mexico of unknown distribution. Point being is uh, gray death is killing uh, abusers out there, and that's the importance of getting uh, folks into treatment. So met, um, medication-assisted treatment is a, is a really good idea. It's a lifesaver. It's not exchanging one drug for another drug. It is very, very um, helpful, and it keeps people alive. So if you know somebody that's using heroin, uh, get them help because uh, early intervention will save lives. Gray death is a reality. You don't know what you're getting on the street. And this isn't your dad's, uh, well, some dad's heroin anymore from the 60s and 70s. This is, this is uh, street death. The other very positive side effect of getting somebody treated is it reduces the risk of infections like hepatitis C, HIV, needle sharing, and the like, abscesses, uh, staph infections. And it's uh, some hospitals, it's not uncommon for them to... Um, take folks to the operating room regularly for staph infections and these these can be pretty nasty and I've uh, helped out on those a few times and uh, they're uh, a slow heal because a lot of times uh, addicts are either malnourished or they just don't take care of themselves and uh, they have a pretty high risk of reinfection okay I want to move on to another topic because when we talk about drug treatment, we want to talk about what's out there and what works. And I haven't really touched on this much, and I'll expand it later. I'm going to interview some folks. Cognitive behavioral therapy. There's other things out there that are helpful and not necessarily in a drug form. These are behavioral therapies that have been tested and they're evidence-based, and they're method to improve coping strategies. So the core belief is there is self, there's others, and there is future. And what you want to do is you want to change your thoughts and feelings, and the behavior will follow. So it was originally developed for depression. Now it's used for, like, anxiety disorders, addiction, PTSD, Eating disorders, OCD, bipolar, pain, think pain, addiction, depression, fibromyalgia, etc. It does not diagnose anything. It, it does help, though. It helps the treatment. It's not diagnostic. It helps treatment. All right, there are six phases. Uh, so there's assessment, rethinking, reconceptualizing, skills, developing skills, maintenance, follow-up, and then reassessment. So it's probably better than benzodiazepines with very few side effects. I can tell you that. Uh, and it's really helpful for patients to go all in because the worst side effect of cognitive behavioral therapy is the dropout rate is pretty high. Uh, people have to be invested in it and believe in it. 
So there's a lot of reinforcement there. But what's really cool is you can use computers and you can use the Internet. So it's something that folks can do at home, they can do with family, and it's very reinforcing uh, in the grand scheme of pain treatment, anxiety, addiction, depression. All right, I think that's going to wrap it up for here because uh, it's um, there's there's a lot coming, and I I want to hear from you. I really do. I want to hear more um, of your questions. I have a few to answer. Sorry if I'm a little behind on some. I'll get caught up. Uh, and it's paininformation.com. Just leave a, a little question there, and if you wouldn't mind rating me uh, on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. It helps us rank. And um, I'll see you soon.